Our scripture passage for this evening comes from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 21, as we read verses 1 through 15. Hear now the word of God. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with the matter, and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us, as, as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord, to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Dag the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is, this, is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to, to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands, and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths in our hearts this evening. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, would you shed your light of illumination upon this text? Help us to understand it, to understand you, to understand ourselves and to treasure this message so that we will be changed people. Send your spirit to make it so, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight's passage shows us what happens when David runs for his life. You remember our last passage, how David was warned by Jonathan. Uh, it turns out, as David originally feared, Jonathan was, was wrong, and Jonathan has now discovered that Saul really does want to kill David, genuinely plans to kill David. And so David goes on the run, and David becomes a fugitive. Uh, tonight, I simply want us to observe two principles in the life of David, uh, one of which is full of weakness on David's part, and the other of which is, is full of grace. And let's admit it, that's a little bit of us, right? <laughs> We are weak, and we need grace, too. 
And so the two principles. So the first principle is fear over faith. This is the weak principle in David's life. Fear over faith. Um, the second principle is love over letter. So we have fear over faith on the one hand, and then we have love over letter. Both principles come out in this passage this evening. Uh, first tonight, I want us to see in action fear over faith. Fear over faith. Keep in mind, it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing for David to be, be fearful. So this is not necessarily the sort of, of uh, thing we want to aspire to. Uh, when we see it in David's life. And, you know, not every biblical hero is supposed to be a perfect example of bravery in the face of difficulty. Not every biblical character is always, 100% of the time, the sort of positive example that you want to follow. Because if we're highly idealistic and, and we aren't carefully nuanced about how we think about human nature, you know, we might become convinced that all people don't come in shades of gray, right? If you, we may make the mistake of thinking somebody is either completely good or totally bad, right? Either you're human or you're orc. You're a Jedi or you're a Sith. Um, I could draw all from all my nerd wisdom right now if I wanted to keep going. But, but people, people aren't really like that. We're, we're more gray than we would like to admit. Um, we have some noble character traits. We have other traits in ourselves that we admire at times. But, but truth be told, we are quite often disappointing as well. Uh, the very same people that you see so much that you admire in, and the longer you spend time with them and get to know them, the more you see all the weaknesses come to the surface as well. That's the way we are as fallen human beings. Um, by God's grace, there is some good. Uh, by God's common grace, even, even fallen people have some sort of moral character to them, to one degree or another. <clears throat> we may love God, but, but we mingle our love of Him with failures. And this is why even the most sanctified and holy person still needs God's grace. I'm convinced that David's actions tonight are an example of this grayness at work. Um, there's a mixture here of wisdom and cowardice, and and the author leaves all of those things here for us to see and, and to interpret. But one of the greatest favors the Bible does for us is that it doesn't sugarcoat the people who are in the narrative. It doesn't sugarcoat the characters, right? Biblical figures do not come out, as you read the text, looking pristine and perfect. Even the most important biblical characters don't come out looking that way. There's only one in the entire text, and he comes later. Well, that's the case with David tonight, right? On the one hand, we get a really good look at David. And we get a really good look at David's warts um, in this passage. And on the other hand, there's this unavoidable sense in which J Jesus knew that David here was a figure pointing ahead to himself. And in that sense, we also have to appreciate David. But before David is a picture of Jesus here, first and foremost, he's actually a picture of Israel for us. I want you to notice a few things that, that lend that comparison, some credence here. Notice this. Um, just like Israel fled from Egypt, David is fleeing from these armed forces in this situation. Um, just like Israel, David later has a hostile encounter with the Midianites. Um, just like David, or just like Israel, David has uh, an attempted foray into Moab. Um, but like Israel, David also receives protection from God in spite of his flaws 
and in spite of his sins, and, and even in spite of his cowardice here. He still is protected by God. All, all of these things sort of line up with this idea that David is, is a representation of Israel at this point. Now, there's a lot to be critical of with David. I, I'm not convinced the act of fleeing is unfaithful. I don't think, I would not point to David fleeing from Saul and say, see, David is weak. David is sinful. David is fallen. Look how, look how bad David is. That's, that's not my reason for being critical of David here. You know, it's not wise to run into trouble. Um, God doesn't call David to a suicide mission. Um, as I was preparing this, I started looking back at some of my notes from, uh, from when we were going through Christian history. And as we were doing our church history series in Sunday school, I, I recall, and I, I wish I could remember exactly what it was from. So now I'm recalling from my memory on the fly uh, something, But there was, there was one point, I think, in the second century where Christians began to really desire martyrdom. They really wanted to die at the hands of the state. And so they began going to the state and actually turning themselves in so they could be thrown to the lions because they wanted to become martyrs. They wanted to be remembered. And, and at one point, uh, the Caesar, or maybe it was the general uh, who they were turning themselves into, said, you, you have cliffs you can throw yourselves from, you fools. You know, basically saying, if you want to commit suicide, then go do it yourself. But don't come to me trying to make me somebody who turns you into a martyr because I'm not interested in that. A very interesting response from the Romans at that point in history. And, and it's not right for us to just go out seeking trouble. We should be wise. We should be circumspect. We should make good decisions about ourselves. Well, um, in, in the process of fleeing from trouble, which again, I say it's not sinful for David to do that. Um, in the process of fleeing from David, he, from trouble, David sees the priest, Ahimelech. And we will get to, to Ahimelech in our second point. But, but I want to focus on, for a moment, on the overall arc of what David does after he leaves Jonathan. So remember, Jonathan tells David, you know what, it turns out my father is going to try to kill you. And so David goes to Gath. But how do, how do we think about David's trickery here? How do we think about David pretending to be crazy, right? It's possible that, that this is simply a human sinful failure of David, right? It's possible that in his desperation, he's just flailing, uh, looking for something. Maybe he's, this is for him, this is the bottom of the barrel. To go to Gath, to go to the place where he killed Goliath. Um, he's Goliath is from Gath. Now he's going to Goliath's hometown looking for, for, uh, for help. You know, it's really hard to read this and just completely admire the man. He is, after all, lying to them about himself. He's misrepresenting himself. He wants them to think that he's crazy. You know, it's sad that, that, that God's chosen king is not safe even in his own country, even in Israel, that he would be reduced to finding sanctuary with Achish. Achish, Achish, the king of Gath, that, that, he would, that he would kill Goliath and then soon find himself going to Goliath's people and asking them to protect him. That he would be reduced to such strange performances. It's possible to look at this as a weak moment. It's also possible, and, and I've seen this with some of the commentators, that, that David is, is not sinning here, but David is committing espionage. 
He's spying out the people of Gath. He's looking to see what their strength is. That he is, he is infiltrating these people. Um, it's possible to see it that way. Some of the commentators do see it that way. I tend not to see this as David's finest hour. I won't die on that hill. Somebody could present some evidence to me showing that this is actually uh, really brilliant on David's part. But, but, but what it looks like to me is somebody misrepresenting himself and just trying to stay alive. He's run out of options, and this seems like the best next thing. Uh, by the way, Gath was recently discovered by archaeologists. Um, archaeologists are convinced that they have found what is called the Old City of Gath uh, that would have been there during the Iron Age. And this is the Iron Age. So, so these events, when David would have been there, they have found the city there. Um, they have uncovered the walls that would have been the same ones David saw when he entered the city of Gath. Possibly even the same walls where David made marks on the doors of the gate. So it's very exciting that, that now, and this is very recent, we're talking in the last year or two, that they've realized that they are looking at the old city of Gath where David fled during this period. Um, there are echoes of Israel here, though. Remember, I was talking about the fact that, that, that David is like Israel here. There are echoes of Israel here because, like Israel, David is tested in the wilderness. Much like Israel... Uh, he comes up lacking. I'm, I'm not convinced that this is a sequence that David is proud of later in life. I'm not, I'm not entirely convinced that, that he loved to tell the story of the time when he ran away to Gath and spit all over himself and pretended to be crazy. <laughs> this is not his moment. But see, David is tested in the wilderness. And, and, and like Israel, his outcome shows a mixture of sin and, and virtue. Uh, he goes into the wilderness. He's tested and I think he fails, because David's still a sinner. David's still a sinner here. But see, I want you to also know this. Later in the New Testament, there is another who will, like Israel and like David, go into the wilderness, and that's Jesus. And when Jesus is tempted, he is, is tempted to cut corners. He is tempted to, to obey God, but in doing so, to do it by uh, subterfuge and live by his own cleverness. And when he faces that temptation, instead of doing what David did and instead of doing what Israel did, he passes with flying colors. For a moment, David yields to fear over faith. But Jesus is our great Savior who lived by faith over fear. Praise God. That's the first principle, though, fear over faith. That's what David's living by at the moment. But there's a second principle at work tonight, and that's love over letter. So Jesus arrives at Nob, where Ahimelech is the priest, and he tells him that he's on a mission for the king. Now, here is another example of sort of the, the grayness of, of David, the grayness of these biblical characters. Um, David is being sneaky here. Because think of, think of what he says. He says, I'm on a mission for the king. Now, here's where, you know, um, you, you get to get into to legal hair splitting. If you're a lawyer, uh, if you have, are a lawyer type at least, you may enjoy how he does this. But David says he's on a mission for the king. He does not say which king. See, rather than Saul the king, he's not saying that. He doesn't say Saul sent him. He isn't outright lying. He is also fine with being misunderstood because he could very well be saying, in fact, in fact, I suspect David is probably doing this. He's, 
He's just simply not saying the whole thing, the whole truth. He's on a mission for God. He's on the, a mission for the true king of Israel, and that's God. And one also might argue he's talking about himself. I don't think that's the case. I don't think he's calling himself the king yet. Um, again, this is not Jesus. This is David. This man is a mixture of emotions and motivations. He's complicated, just like all sinners and, and even fellow Christians. There is usually not just one singular thing that motivates and drives us. And here David is. He's a complicated person. It, it may be that this half-truth makes David feel more comfortable with the deception. However you judge David here, David and his men do need help. Now, he, now uh, Ahimelech asked him, if, why is he alone? And clearly David is not completely alone because he has men with him. And, and I think what he, just, what he means when he says, why are, why are you alone, is why isn't the king with you? Why are you here without the king? But David, David and his men need help, and so David requests bread. But the only bread on hand is the bread of the presence. This is holy bread. And we see the bread of the presence described in Leviticus 24. So if you're interested in what is this bread of the presence, go to Leviticus 24. And it'll describe quite a bit, in quite a bit of detail exactly what this is. So what the bread of the presence was, it was 12 cakes of bread. They were set in rows on a table before the Lord. And they sat there all week, and at the end of the week, they would bake new loaves, and they would be replaced with new loaves of bread. So the bread's purpose was to be an offering, um, although the priests could eat the bread at the end of the week as long as it was eaten in a holy place, right? You have to be a holy person in a holy place to eat the holy bread. Um, on Wednesday nights, for, for a while there, we were going through the book of Leviticus. One of the things that reading and studying the book of Leviticus helps is with things like this. Because when you understand a little bit of the holiness code that Israel had to observe, then you appreciate what's happening here and what David's request really involves. In Israel, there were sort of three categories of things. You could be, you, something could be clean, something could be unclean, or something could be holy. So on the one end of the spectrum, you have unclean. In the middle of the spectrum, you have clean, and then on the other hand, you have holy. All right, Unclean things could never come in contact with holy things. Clean things, a little further along in the spectrum of holiness, <laughs> cleanliness, clean things could come in contact with holy things, but unclean things could not come in contact with holy things. So the, the bread of the presence was normally only to be eaten by holy people in a holy place. So that's... That's the rule. That's sort of how it works out. You may think, well, that settles it. David did something wrong here. David's not allowed to have the bread. Right? David is not a priest. Um, David is not a holy person. He's just a, he's just a clean person, but he's not a holy person. Or maybe you'd say the priest Ahimelech did something wrong by giving them the bread. Well, not so fast. Um, one of the things you need to look at in the law is the fact that the law of God has room for grace. Um, I, I don't have time to walk you through the details of this. I don't want to go into the exquisite detail. But in Leviticus 10, there's an, an approved violation of Leviticus 6.16. So if you read Leviticus 10, 12 to 20, you find out that there is a, an approved situation where there's a violation of Leviticus 6.16. And so what we see is that in the ceremonial law, there are certain limited circumstances where some higher level consideration would take precedent. 
Uh, and this was a practice in first century Judaism, right? Animals and people who were in trouble could be rescued on the Sabbath. Even the Pharisees practiced this. And they're they very strict observers of the law. So they understood that there is room for, for some grace even in, in how you interpret and how you enact the Old Testament law. By the way, in Mark chapter 3, Mark chapter 7, and Matthew chapter 12, Jesus accepts this principle as legitimate. So this, this, this principle of sometimes the strictures of the ceremonial law can be set aside in favor of some bigger, higher-level consideration. That's how Jesus even says, that, so you've got agreement among the Jews, even, even with Jesus, that this is okay. So everybody understood there are some laws that occasionally will run into conflict with other laws and the practice of love and mercy. The question is, how to decide it? Well, in Leviticus, the question is settled by the priest. Ahimelech is the priest in this situation. He has the authority here to interpret and apply the Torah. Listen to what Robert Bergen says. He says, since food was necessary for life, and David and his men had no food, it was consistent with Torah principles to provide David and his men the means to sustain their lives. That's, that's the whole thought process that goes into the decision to let David eat this holy bread. Ahimelech makes, puts some requirements on them, but it's very limited. He requires that these men not be sexually unclean. They can't have gone near a woman recently. Um, and he could have been more thorough. He could have. And he would have been justified in it. He could have been more thorough in determining that they were really clean. Um, for example, he doesn't ask if they've touched a dead body recently. These men are soldiers. They may very well have touched a dead body. So, so Ahimelech seems to be taking reasonable precautions, but he's not taking stringent precautions. The idea here is the law still matters, right? That's why he's making sure they're not sexually unclean. The law still matters, but so does mercy. So the, the tightness of the law ends up being re relaxed in a situation where grace is needed. And we see this uh, with all of the Ten Commandments. You can have situations where you have uh, an opportunity to honor your father and mother. At the same time, you also maybe have to make a decision about being wise with your finances, which the larger catechism says is dealt with in the Ten Commandments. You will have those two sort of run into conflict with each other, and you're going to have to decide what is, what is, how do you resolve this. And with all the Ten Commandments, you'll run into those situations. It seems like we've run into that. We ran into that during the coronavirus season, right? Where we had to say, look, the, the, the commandment tells us to preserve life. The commandment also tells us that we should worship God. And eventually, you may have situations where those two come into conflict and have to make decisions about what must be done. And those aren't easy things to work through either. And so the idea here is uh, of love over letter. Love over letter. Um, Jesus argues with the Pharisees in Matthew 12. And in Matthew 12, he brings up this exact story. He brings up this exact episode in the life of David. And his argument is, Jesus' argument is, love takes precedence over the letter of the law. That's the lesson Jesus derives from this moment in David's life. The Pharisees have, have become so strict in some ways, when it comes to the Sabbath, that they, they've not really reckoned with David's narrative here. 
Jesus says, you haven't thought through the implications of what happens in this episode of David's life. Jesus is telling them, love over letter. That's the lesson that Jesus draws from this episode. There's one Reformed writer who says it very well. He says, in Matthew chapter 12, Christ defends this event and shows that the entirety of the ceremonial law should yield to love. It should yield to love. Think of the context of Jesus' conversation in Matthew. Jesus has just finished telling the Pharisees in Matthew 12, 7. He says, I want mercy, not sacrifice. I want mercy, not sacrifice. And then what does he do? He reminds them of tonight's passage. He endorses David's actions. He endorses Ahimelech's actions here. It's worth keeping in mind that while the ceremonial law is of immense importance as a container of, of types and, and shadows pointing to Jesus, we're talking about the ceremonial law. The moral law is of vastly greater enduring importance, and it came before the ceremonial law, and it will last long after. It is possible for someone to violate the ceremonial law, but never actually commit a sin. So it's not a sin, necessarily, to violate the ceremonial law. Um, it isn't necessarily a sin to become unclean. If, if a couple has sexual relations, that would make them unclean. There's no sin in it if they're a married couple. Um, if a woman gave birth, she'd be unclean. There's nothing immoral <laughs> about giving birth. Um, so neither of those things are violations of the moral law. It is not a sin to break the ceremonial law, but it is always a sin to break the moral law. Jesus is constantly faulting the Pharisees for prioritizing the ceremonial law over the more, more fundamental moral requirements of life and God's word. Here's how J.C. Ryle puts it. He says, The first commandment of the law is not to be so interpreted to make us break the second. The fourth commandment is not to be so explained as to make us unkind and unmerciful to our neighbor. No ordinance of God is to be pressed so far as to make us neglect the plain duties of charity. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. So, just a moment ago, I said that we're not supposed to interpret the ceremonial law so as to uh, put us in a situation where we sin. The same thing goes for the moral law. It is possible to, uh, to understand the moral law in such a way that we don't read each of the commandments as being against one another. That doesn't mean that the work of parsing that out is easy. Uh, I use the example of coronavirus once again. By the way, every time I say that word, I get jabbed in the, in the side by my son later. Uh, he, he doesn't want me to make references to coronavirus anymore. He's tired of it, and, and we all are. Um, but working through these things is not easy necessarily. Well, what does that look like in practice? Well, you may find yourself in difficult situations where you're presented with someone who is in need of mercy when you could be, could be keeping a religious duty, right? Uh, the Sabbath is a good example. If you see a person in need, um, maybe you have a particular set of skills with vehicles. I do not. I've never had a particular set of skills with vehicles. Um, whenever I see somebody broken down and I can help them, I always walk over and say, can I call someone for you? And they always say, this is 2020, I have a phone, thank you, sir. Um, but here's the point. You may not use the fact that you are on your way to church, for example, or because it's a Sunday and you're not supposed to work, you may not use that as your excuse to prevent you from offering help. 
That's an example of love over law. Yes, fixing the car would be work. But it's a work of necessity. We may not use God's law as cover for being cruel or being uncompassionate to people. The Pharisees lived like that, and Jesus took them to task. There's a warning here. Just because mercy is important doesn't mean we should profane the Sabbath, doesn't mean we should treat it like any other day. So don't, don't draw the wrong lesson from this principle, in other words. The Sabbath is our duty, but it's a duty that's given to us for our good. God is not giving us excuses in Scripture to ignore God's law. He's reminding us that we must not lose our soul in the process and miss the other duty that we have staring us in the face. I don't know which way you tend in discussions like this, but some people, some people use everything as an excuse to profane the Sabbath, right? They shop like it's any other day. They eat out like it's any other day. They go to sporting events like every other day. They make other people work as their servant in restaurants or stores like any other day, even though the fourth commandment says that neither you nor your servant should work on the Sabbath. People don't mind hiring people out temporarily as servants on the Sabbath. That may be you. There is a warning here that the Sabbath is serious, that the Sabbath is to be kept holy, and it's for your good. It's not to steal things from you and steal fun from you and take away a, a day that you try to be productive or anything like that. The point of the Sabbath is not to ruin your day. The point of the Sabbath is you need a Sabbath. <laughs> the point of the Sabbath is God is holy and you need it. And you need, to, you need to experience his day. I don't know if you need to be warned about being more merciful. Or if you need to be warned about keeping the Sabbath holy. But never use the one as the excuse for ignoring the other, Jesus says. But the warning Jesus has for the Pharisees is these men are hungry. Have you gotten so strict in how you obey God's law that you have no room for a man to even pluck a head of grain like Jesus and his disciples were doing. You've also gone too far. The mistakes of the Pharisees were in one direction. The mistakes of many other Christians are in the other direction. But see, Jesus exemplified this principle of love over the letter of the law. <clears throat> Jesus tells us in Matthew 12, 7, that he is something greater than the temple. And that in the midst of this reminder, and that, that is in the midst of his reminder of David, right? He may as well have said something greater than David is here. Jesus' story of David here is, is an argument from the lesser to the greater. Jesus' argument is, if David can do this, then the Son of Man can most definitely do this. You know, we may admire David, but David was a, a sinner. We may admire Ahimelech, the priest, but, but, but Ahimelech had flaws. Uh, he sinned. Jesus is constantly reading the Old Testament for us, and isn't he really saying, this is, a book, this is a book that's not an end in itself. It's a book that was meant to lead you to me. The, the trail of breadcrumbs that you're following when you read the Old Testament stops at the feet of Jesus. This evening's reading does that. 1 Samuel sets for us an, before us an, an anointed Savior of Israel who's pursued by his enemies, 
nourished by the bread of the presence, putting into actions the true action, the truth that God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Here, as 20th century Christians, all I can do is simply ask you, are you trusting in the one who all of these events really point us to? Are you trusting in the one? The breadcrumb leads to Jesus. Are you trusting in him? Or do you live a life of self-focus and self-esteem self -esteem and, and selfishness? This is not ultimately a story about David, really. I mean, after all, David stumbles into this situation, not necessarily as one of his best days, right? David is far from the brave hero. David is the anointed king. And, and remember, the word anointed is the word Messiah. He is the messianic king of Israel. But this is really a story that takes us further than this place to the real anointed one, the real Messiah. The king who doesn't run. The king who doesn't disappoint. The king who doesn't fail. I think we all know this really isn't a story about Ahimelech either, right? It's sad if we stay stuck on the priest in the story. Just as Jesus is the king who, like David, anointed, is anointed but greater. Jesus is our great priest. He's greater than Ahimelech. Right? It's sad if we get hung up on the anointed king of Israel but miss the greater king, the sinless king, and the priest. He's our priest too. The truly great savior who fills every need of us that we have a king and that we have a priest and that we have a prophet who speaks for us from God. And so just like the priest gave the bread to David, and just like David gave the bread to those who were with him, saying, take and eat, see the goodness, see the mercy of God to you. Doesn't Jesus in the Lord's Supper do the same for us? He holds out the bread of life, his own flesh even, and says, take and eat, this is my mercy, seen in a visible form. Take it in and... And believe it, this is, a, this is a passage full of meaning. But it means nothing if it doesn't lead us to the Savior's throne. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, your Son is precious to us. We see his face all over the scriptures. We see him in the words of life that you give to us here even tonight. Would you turn our gaze from ourselves and our own hearts and set our eyes squarely on your Son and your Son alone, in whose name we pray.